0: This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 53, recorded on April 7th, 2022. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast about all things science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah. I am here with none other than. Drum roll. Doctor, Fawner. how are
1: you? I'm doing good. Maybe we should add a drum roll sound bite into We should, we should the uh, podcast software.
0: And uh, uh, the new and renewed and uh, uh, can I share your news? Oh yeah, please.: And promoted Dr. Fawner. He is now an associate professor. Instead of an assistant professor, uh, good good work and congrats. Thank you, thank you, and I'm sure we'll. Finally, be... uh, this this uh, podcast gains credibility now that. Uh, <laughs> that well, who knows? Maybe. That's right.
1: <laughs> maybe it was the podcast that tipped tipped the scales maybe. in my I favor the for getting the promoted. Committee. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. don't know. You don't know Absolutely. which way that causality went.
0: Congrats, congrats. Thank you, right. thank how, you.
1: How how are uh, things up in Erie? They're good, you know. Winding down, but also at the same time, kind of still busy as ever with uh, convergence. And uh, just, you know, it, it's so weird here compared to when we were working at Teal. At this point in the semester, we were winding down. I don't down.
0: remember those days.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can remember some of them around this we're time we would no. be doing the, uh, the Western PA Symposium. Prep yeah, and getting this, ready the, to go yeah, to
0: that. Yeah, they uh they used to end their semester early, early in May, end of April, right? So yeah, yeah. We, we would be in the final sprint of the semester.
1: Yeah, I think we'd have our last set of labs, you know, next week, and then classes, and then it's final, and then that's yeah, it. Would be
0: itching for summer break.
1: Yeah, but no yeah, more. just convergence and wrapped up my last class yesterday, which was good, and uh, that's about it. And now just managing PBL. How about you?
0: uh we're still in the semester uh actually tomorrow is the last day for the second year pbls and then they go on their dedicated time for boards good and uh i think the conversions course is also over done here and um my masters course ended uh, a couple weeks ago so that's uh off off my plate that's good yeah um just finished the master's BBL as well, so yeah, oh, nice. it's um, wrapping up too. It's good news. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's get going. We've got a we've got an interesting uh, few studies uh, today, and yep. uh, why don't we start with Jacques Loeb?
1: Yeah, Jacques Loeb, uh, born April seventh, eighteen fifty nine, uh, died February eleventh, nineteen twenty four. And he was a German-born American physiologist and biologist. Uh, he received his education in Germany, um, got his MD in 1884, later moved to the United States, uh, started at Bryn Mawr College, and then moved to the University of Chicago, and then University of California. You uh, know, I applied for
0: a job at Bryn Mawr one time.
1: I did not know that. Was that yeah. before Teal or Mitzvah?
0: Before Lee of- before Oh, gotcha, okay, yeah, yeah, well, I did a... not get, I did not get it, but
1: uh... yeah, there i I sometimes forget about those few years where we were kind of applying and writing letters for each other and all of that stuff, and kind of chaotic there, yeah but, um right. anyway, since we found our place now that's right uh, eventually ended up at Rockefeller University until he died. Um, he was mainly known for his experimental work on artificial parthenogenesis and that is the art not art uh, mechanism of reproduction without fertilization and it's something that we discussed way back wow almost 50 episodes ago in our one of our first episodes episode yeah. 6
0: of I, I remember bizarre that animal reproduction we had yeah. we had a student guest grant milne if you remember mm-hmm. him yeah He's now a PhD student somewhere in New Hampshire, I think, and that doing uh, marine biology.
1: And so he'd be in his end of his third year now. Because did oh, he yeah, leave when we did? Or? No, he's
0: he's probably like in his fourth year PhD. Wow. Yeah. yeah That's he's, crazy. Uh, he used to work in your lab. He's 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 your uh, product. Yeah.
1: He he did some good work. We were trying to culture and get bacteria. Going in the lab that we swabbed and collected off the backs of was it fungus? no it was bacteria and, and then it, we were we the aim of our project at first was to try and see if there was any fungus that yeah, had yeah. made its way up near teal but we started we got some microbial samples started growing that and then the year got very busy and then grant moved
0: on and he's a he's said, a, definitely a good success story uh, from no the lab, of course for sure yeah but yeah, so if our listeners are interested in learning about uh, more about art, uh, uh, parthenogenesis, uh, you know, basically not needing a male yeah. uh, to reproduce, uh, we discussed that on episode six. Uh, go back and uh, listen to that episode. But go ahead and tell what, us more about uh, Loeb.
1: Well, what Jacques was able to do was he got unfertilized eggs of urchins and frogs, and he got them to full maturity just by manipulating certain environmental factors. So by manipulating the environment in which the unfertilized eggs were in, and by simply performing slight chemical modifications of the water in which the eggs were maintained, he was able to stimulate development without the presence of sperm, which is pretty cool. Very novel. Uh, Yeah. Very fun stuff. Uh, It's Uh, like
0: the... uh immaculate conception there
1: i was about to say the There's virgin precedent Ur- for this the virgin urchin or the virgin <laughs> frog if, The virgin urchin is good i like that
0: <laughs> i like that one. <laughs>
1: that's something that we can maybe patent and turn into our first uh, i think t-shirt that's going to be the title money. of
0: this episode
1: the virgin urchin man yeah that'll get us about 50 more 50 uh, more downloads bingo. i like that bingo.
0: I, we're making it title uh yeah um so he became, very, he, he became very popular in the US, right? Yeah. And he was uh, on on a lot of magazines and things like that. And uh, a notable atheist, by the way.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, he was uh, the model for the character uh, Max Gottlieb in Sinclair Lewis's Pulitzer-winning novel. Um, is that Aerosmith?
0: Yeah, it is Aerosmith. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah Not it is be- Aerosmith.
1: Not to be confused with the, with the band? you know, is that, is that popular a band? popular rock band, <laughs> but um, even Mark Twain wrote an essay about Jacques' incredible discovery. I think was it called Doctor Loeb's incredible discovery?
0: It Was yeah, Doctor Loeb's incredible discovery. Okay. Yeah, he was he was real popular in the U.S. And uh, yeah, I also discovered actually his brother. Uh, became a very popular pathologist as well in the U.S. He also followed him from Germany to the U.S., immigrated to the U.S., and became a very popular pathologist. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, do a quick uh, coronavirus update in terms of numbers. Where are we globally and in the U.S.? So in
1: terms of cases around the world, 494.5 494.5 million um, deaths around the world at 6.2 million cases in the U S 81.9 million and U S deaths, 981,000. So creeping slowly towards that uh million death benchmark, if you will.
0: You know, there were conflicting numbers on that when I looked, um, yesterday, right? So, uh, New York Times was reporting around 980,000, CDC, something similar. Okay. World of Meters numbers, which has Mm. also been reliable for data, was reporting a million. So uh, who knows? But I mean, it's it's only a matter of time at this point.
1: Yeah. No, it's going to, it'll keep going, even if it takes a little bit longer. Now that cases have started to kind of stagnate a bit. Yeah. But, Um, But we
0: are, we are one out of six of... The global deaths yeah, yeah, that's uh right.
1: yeah, still you know kind of some frightening and humbling numbers here, but um for the u s vaccination effort, individuals partially vaccinated at about eleven percent, those fully vaccinated at about sixty six percent, and the total vaccination percentage there is seventy seven percent so pretty good in terms of the vaccination effort uh. In terms of boosters, only 50% of the population that is fully vaccinated. Um, Are these numbers changing much in terms of vaccine data? No, not really.
0: Actually, you know, we recorded last maybe three or four weeks ago, and the numbers have stayed the same in terms of percentages. Okay. Uh, Of those fully vaccinated, like you said, only 50% are boosted. And Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, more people should get a booster, obviously, because it offers more neutralizing antibodies. But The U.S. has stagnated in the effort for vaccination, Mm -hmm. but uh, we think that the level of natural immunity is also up there. I think so. It's also high, right? So I think the general population has relative natural and vaccine immunity to uh, coronavirus at this point.
1: And it'll be interesting when those numbers if those data are eventually kind of identified and made available, and we can look at that. Again, I don't know, large scale study, something along those lines, but it would be interesting to compare those who weren't vaccinated if they have just by getting it, you natural know, immunity. Natural yes. immunity. And yep. you
0: know, uh, Keller, Doctor Keller has made that point on this podcast multiple times, and, yep. and he's and he's right. You should look yes. at the level of of antibodies. Yep. Now, the Omicron variant, or the variant of the Omicron variant, right? That BA point two or whatever, mm-hmm. is now the dominant uh, variant in the. United States, definitely the dominant variant in Europe, they're seeing a spike in cases in Europe, we still have not seen a spike in cases in the US. There are some in some big cities. Yeah. And multiple theories abound as to why that is. And I will preface the following (laughs) with we don't know. Yeah. Uh, Even the CDC does not know. And uh last thing I read, there's a couple of theories as to why they think that we're not seeing the spike that they expected to see with 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 the new variant. And uh one of them is that um most people have immunity rather, either from vaccination or national immunity. People have moved on in terms of they get it, they get a case of the uh mild, mild case, and they're not they're not going to get tested. So the numbers are not being registered. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, third possibility is that people are using at-home antigen tests, and unless you physically, personally report that to a health agency, it does not get recorded. Yep. So that's an undercounting uh, case, uh, right? And um, uh, I, I think people have just um, moved on in a uh, sense, or right, accepted. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Or or we're just being a, a bit delayed in that spike, and and we'll see it closer to later. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think it's all speculation. No one knows is is the problem. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's where we are and we don't want to spend too much time on coronavirus. The science of it hasn't changed. The uh, treatments have not changed. The Mm -hmm. uh, mutations are the mutations. They're going to happen, whether we like them or not. Uh, So there's not much honestly to discuss in terms of the uh, coronavirus that we haven't already talked about on this podcast. Yep. Agreed. All right, let's talk about an exciting uh, study that I uh, found in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is uh, fresh, only about two weeks old, maybe. Cool. So it's called the or the title of the study is Association of Habitual Alcohol Intake with the Risk of Cardiovascular Disease. Uh, Authors are Kieran Biddinger uh, et al., Uh, many, many authors on there. I'm not going to go through them, but, you know, uh, that's the first author. So as we all know, uh, over the years, there are many studies that uh, basically prepared to show or demonstrate that moderate consumption of alcohol has an association with lower risk of cardiovascular disease uh, compared to like heavy drinking or no drinking at all. And uh, Whenever these studies come out, they are front page news and they make it to the evening news and they say, oh, one glass of wine a day, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And uh, so, you know, drinking alcohol is a universal thing. It's uh, people have been doing it, humans have been doing it for a very long time. Very long time, yep. thousands of years, right? Um, uh, there's plenty of controversy sort of surrounding whether drinking alcohol has any beneficial effects uh particularly as it relates to cardiovascular disease and uh, cardiovascular disease remains to be the number 1 uh, killer worldwide the most common cause of death worldwide
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh you know in my mind I when I read that I was like okay well that, does it matter based on uh the income of the country right and it turns out n- n- not really right uh, uh basically, heart disease uh, is the leading cause of death in low, middle and high income countries. Uh, it, it still remains. Yeah, I know, right. Uh, still remains to be the number uh, one uh, cause of worldwide uh, mortality. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, many studies over the years have tried to show a beneficial uh, effect of, of alcohol. But what most people... Missed in a lot of those studies is confounding factors that were not properly addressed. What is the lifestyle of the drinkers? What is the socioeconomic status of the drinkers? What are What is their behavior? How do they yeah. eat? What do they eat? So on and so, so forth, right? And because of these uh, studies put forth or forward, uh, they've contributed to a lot of health uh, guidance, including in the U.S., So right now, federal guidelines in the U.S. classify fewer than 15 drinks for men and eight for women as low risk drinking based on a lot of these uh, studies. So this study said, okay, well, what is the effect of all of this confounding factors? Right. So. What they wanted to do here is uh, explore the association between alcohol intake and cardiovascular disease, but taking into consideration lifestyle and behavioral factors that might affect these associations. So, what did they look at? They looked at roughly uh, Four hundred thousand or so, so three hundred seventy thousand individuals, and uh, they looked at a UK biobank and a, a mass, mass health biobank. And uh, it, it is important to note that uh, they looked at people of European genetic ancestry. So uh, I guess it applies to that population.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The endpoints for the study were uh, six different things. They focused on uh a hypertension so basically high blood pressure coronary artery disease so blockages of blood vessels etc myocardial infarction so a heart attack stroke heart failure and atrial fibrillation basically just a bad rhythm in the heart right they also looked at a bunch of other things uh, they looked at 10 other variables what are the total cholesterol levels uh what are the what is the level of inflammation? They measured an a CRP for that, a protein indicating inflammation. Uh, they measured the liver damage, for example, by measuring a, 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 um, an enzyme called gamma-glutamyl transferase, so on and so forth. Right, so they looked at a lot of things, and the drinking levels were classified as the following. So if you did not drink any alcohol at all, you were considered an abstainer. Mm-hmm. Light drinking was zero to eight point four drinks a week. Which which is still at more than a, one a day. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Now we'll talk about this a little bit later. The one thing they did not address whether the drinking was all in one sitting A drink Mm -hmm. a day, spread Uh, out over time, four drinks Saturday, four drinks Sunday, I don't know, Mm -hmm. right? So so binge drinking versus versus spread out drinking. Yep. Moderate drinking was 8.4 to 15.4 drinks per week. Okay. Right? Heavy drinkers were 15.4 to uh, 24.5 drinks per week and abusers of alcohol were greater than 25 drinks a week
1: which is, I feel guilty when I have one can of Miller Lite on a Thursday night to just unwind and, you know, watch an episode of a TV show. So, yeah. Okay.
0: They're out there. So, and they then looked at, obviously, cardiovascular disease and drinking levels, but, you know, they took into account this time, physical activity, BMI levels, smoking frequency, consumption of vegetable versus red meat, et cetera. They adjusted for all of these factors. And the study results were, 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 were stark, honestly. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll go through some boring numbers and then sort of summarize the, 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 the study. The average age of the population that they studied was 57. 46% were men, 54% uh, uh, women the average consumption was 9.2 drinks per week if you take anywhere between abstainers to abusers. 90% of the alcohol consumed was either beer, wine, or white wine or champagne. Basically, in that order of preference, beer is the most preferred beverage uh, of of all of these. Interestingly, 33% of this population had hypertension, high blood pressure. Seven and a half percent had coronary artery disease, so blockages of, of, of arteries. And then the, basically, they found a very strong association between alcohol consumption and the prevalence or hazards of high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, coronary artery disease. There's a very strong association there. And they did see which is what pretty much a lot of other studies see that light to moderate consumption of alcohol does indeed if you just look at that and the risk of cardiovascular disease or whatever or ca- mm-hmm. do they have any cardioprotective effects the answer is yes but importantly and this is this is the key point here that cardioprotective effect is attenuated it's it's reduced it's removed it's gone if you account for the lifestyle factors so if you it turns out all of these previous studies or so or or this is at least what they claim in this study Mm -hmm. is that any benefits seen from light to moderate drinking was due to higher physical activity higher vegetable intake lower rates of smoking and lower bmis Basically, these people lived healthier lifestyles than the heavier drinkers. And interestingly, they lived heavier lifestyles than the abstainers of alcohol, hmm.
1: which to me was a bit interesting, right? Yeah, maybe paradoxical.
0: Yeah, yeah, right?
1: I don't know. And you also have to think that, I don't know, if you're not really living the healthiest lifestyle, your BMI is not the greatest, you're more sedentary and you don't have the greatest level of physical activity, you can't look at, oh, I'm gonna just drink light to somewhat moderately, and that's gonna help me to protect against cardiovascular disease or anything like that. Yeah, it's yeah. not gonna work out because all these things work together. It's like pieces of a pie. They're all gonna affect your metabolism, your metabolic rate, you know, fat content, diet, signals to the brain, it all works together in determining eventually what you're going to be predisposed to. And cardiovascular risk is one of the things that all of these factors tie into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I think uh, maybe there's sort of like, um, I don't know, I forget the psychological term, but, you know, the there's a term for uh, people who because they live a healthier lifestyle let's say they exercise or whatever mm-hmm. then then they say oh i can now afford to eat xyz yes. right yeah yes. there's a term for it i i forget i forget the term there is an actual term for it but well i know a term it's what i sometimes practice oh i can go and eat that
1: uh, you know bacon cheeseburger with uh, extra blue cheese on it because i try to go to the gym every day and unfortunately as you get especially as you get older doesn't work like that. You have to try to have a healthy balance of everything in your life, not do five things just so you can sacrifice two or three more. Are you looking it up?
0: Yeah, and health, I think it might be like false positive reinforcement or something like that. <laughs> there's there's a psychological term for it. But I
1: mean, you got to figure a ton of people are doing that as well because and it's not necessarily that we're judging that or saying it's a bad thing because I don't know. I'm Hollywood's not going to be calling me anytime soon. And the only people who are really, you know, sacrificing. Well, I mean, a lot of people are out there doing that, but if I, my days of having a six pack, not a beer, but a six pack in terms of ab work, they have left me a little while ago. And if I wanted to, could I have that? Yeah. I could just eat vegetables and very low fat things and work out two hours a day and give up beer and, uh not not drink you know one or two beers a week but i also see my double bacon cheeseburgers every now and then as oh i've done good this week or i yeah, got exactly. good news yeah, yeah. we I'm we, all, we all
0: do that sort of yep. like trade off right mm-hmm. so yeah thankfully for me my my allergies uh prevent me from drinking beer so that's
1: true nature then, has nature shut the door on that one for you <laughs>
0: it did it did man which is unfortunate because i love a good ipa but mm, yep Anyway, so so basically, uh, the the main conclusion here is that there is a causal association between alcohol intake and risk of high blood pressure and coronary artery disease. and that increases with uh, even the modest consumption of alcohol right, and then Mm -hmm. exponentially increases in magnitude as you drink more, right. Mm -hmm. And any reported cardioprotective effects of light to moderate alcohol consumption may really be because of the healthy lifestyle confounding factors that a lot of studies have not really, you know, taken into account. Mm -hmm. And they go on to recommend uh, basically everyone to limit their uh, consumption of alcohol. But more importantly, they recommend a revision to the health guidelines by mm-hmm. most countries. Do you know, uh, including whenever the they... federal US guidelines.
1: Good. Uh, do you know, whenever they investigated and looked at alcohol consumption in terms of beer, did they parse that out? Did they divide that into, okay. Hoppy beer versus no, full flavored no, beer versus no, light beer. No. Because I mean, there could be something there with, you know, uh, I don't know, light beer,
0: lower calories. Uh, you I, know, I don't I, I I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And I again I, I actually, that's a good point. And they did not really get into the, but that was not the purpose of the study. So I understand understood. why they yeah. did not do it. They did not yeah. really get into the fact well, is it the calories? Is it the alcohol? Is it the mm-hmm. ethanol? right yeah. is it what is it in there that you know increases the risk of xyz right but yeah and you know possible limitations uh you know like we said earlier this is a study of of uh, people of european ancestry right so um pretty much mostly caucasian individuals yeah and um they don't know or they didn't parse out whether the effects are actually genetic rather than causal. Is it, is it the drinking that, that increases your risk of cardiovascular disease and, and, and hypertension, or is it certain genes that you inherit as being part of that population that then, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's something, that's something to, to look into, but this is a huge I can, I cannot understate the significance of this study uh, based on our current understanding of the effects of alcohol on, on long-term risk of cardiovascular disease.
1: Yeah. That's no, definitely something to keep in mind. And like you said, it's, it depends on everything else that you're doing. It's not going to just be one singular factor that determines whether somebody, I mean, cardiovascular
0: risk, heart disease, hypertension, yeah you it's could not you could not drink at all and have a pan of bacon every day and that kills you right
1: exactly exactly and i I think there's a pretty strong genetic component there there is a strong one hundred component there with one hundred uh history of heart disease and anything like that yeah, so
0: yeah uh
1: yeah, but still very cool and very
0: interesting result yeah yeah absolutely so Let's uh, switch gears to our second topic of the episode and uh, tell us about these new cells. So um, recently, and this was also
1: a paper and a study that was recently published in Nature? Nature. Nature. And it was published March 30th, 2022. So two pretty interesting results and brand new studies that we're presenting here for you today. And in this study, um, researchers have discovered an innovative and brand new type of cell that's going to be found in the passageways of human lungs. And the researchers actually kind of found this while they were doing some kind of comparisons between the, uh, you know, the airway linings from the mouse and comparing that to humans, because the human and mouse airway structures are slightly different. Um, I'm not going to bore anybody with the details, but in essence, in human beings, um, there's a little bit more, I guess you could call it segregation, and the airway lining is a little bit more distinct. You know, your um, respiratory airways, your bronchioles, your alveoli, etc. It's a little bit more Uh, Developed than that of the mouse. But uh, while they were doing these comparisons, they investigated using some um, RNA sequencing and other types of methods, genetic methods. They were able to discover these brand new types of cells in human tissues. So, Uh, what what did they call these cells or what are they called? They're called RAS cells. uh, That stands for respiratory airway secretory cells and they're going to be found in these very cool structures near the distal or the areas of your airways that are closest to your actual lung tissue that participate so when, in when you gas mean, exchange when
0: you say distal you mean uh farthest away from the nose from when you first breathe in right. from the
1: nose exactly right. so, so, so
0: proximal would be closer to the nose and distal mm-hmm. would be farther away
1: yeah. So okay. as we're going deeper down into the areas of the lung that actually participate the abyss. in ox into the abyss, exactly, uh, where we see exchange of oxygen, exchange of carbon dioxide, so that we can expire carbon dioxide. Uh, they found these cells in these branching and very, very tiny passageways
0: known as uh, bronchioles, respiratory bronchioles. And right so after just, just for our listeners who are not in- full-blown science geeks or anatomists. So we start yep. with, you breathe in, right? It goes to the trachea. Then it the goes to the, to the bronchi. Bronchi. And then, and then the bronchi smaller subdivide bronchi- uh-huh.
1: into smaller bronchi, known as bronchioles. It's Perfect. kind of the same way how the circulatory systems is arranged. Uh-huh. You have uh, arteries and then arterioles, which are right. the just tiny, tinier versions of and arteries. And then from the
0: bronchioles, we're going to go to smaller Al- structures called the alveoli. Perfect. And that's where you do all that gas exchange.
1: Yes. And you're you're switching
0: CO2 for O2, etc.
1: Exactly. And again, different parts of that is subdivided into whether you're sending air that you're breathing in down to the lungs. And then you're going to have a few zones in those furthest reaches of the airways that participate in the gas exchange, you can get it's called the respiratory zone where we're seeing that exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. That happens in those furthest regions, the alveoli and the respiratory bronchioles also will participate in that as well in the respiratory tract.
0: So these new cells, respiratory, airway, uh, secretory 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 cells, cells, Mm -hmm. and they're in these bronchioles, what do they do?
1: So they're going to be very similar to what we call stem cells. So these stem cells, which are basically these kind of blank cells that are able to transition or differentiate into any other type of cell in the body. And what the, what the researchers eventually found out was that these RAS cells that are in the bronchioles are very similar to stem cells in the fact that they're gonna be able to differentiate into special types of alveolar lung tissue cells that are able to uh, eventually secrete chemicals and different molecules that are able to repair damaged lung tissue. Okay. So okay. they're just, very just a, just a small
0: ahead. step back. Differentiate mm-hmm. means becoming something different, right? So, yes. from a scientific perspective, when we say a cell differentiates, it means it started as one cell and now it becomes a different cell. Right. Exactly, or a more mature, whatever. But it dip- well, and as you
1: differentiate, you take on specialized functions, right? Too exactly, right? Okay. So, so stem as cells were-
0: can do that. They're great mm-hmm. at doing that. They they can they can basically become any cell we want them to, just by giving them environmental signals and cues and stimuli.
1: Yep. So they found kind of two main functions of these RAS cells. Um, they're going to be able to secrete molecules. That are going to help to basically maintain uh, fluid lining um, along the respiratory bronchioles. And you need to have this fluid lining in your respiratory bronchioles as well as in your alveoli to create surface tension um, or to maintain a certain amount of surface tension that is going to prevent those very, very tiny airways from collapsing in on themselves Mm. and thus defeating the purpose of exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, right. from your bloodstream. Lung, lung collapse is a is a bad thing. It's a very bad thing. Um, so they help to make sure the lungs are operating at peak okay. efficiency. Okay. And the RAS, as we said, the RAS cells are going to act as these progenitor cells to basically be able to transform into and differentiate into types of alveolar cells that are going to be very key for repairing damaged uh, lung tissues. So, so it's very have, cool.
0: Sorry, good. Have have they have they been shown to play a role in people who have damaged lungs like smokers or COPD patients, chronic okay. obstructive pulmonary disorder or long term damage lung damage patients?
1: Oh, yeah. So they could potentially due to their kind of dual effects here. Where they act as progenitor cells, where they can repopulate theoretically.
0: Um, cell so this population. is from this paper so far. They focused on finding the cell and what it does. Mm-hmm. There are no studies yet on their function, on their like function in disease. Is that correct?
1: Theorized. Okay. Right theorized now they're this theorizing uh-huh. this, okay. Okay. but in theory, due to their progenitor-like capabilities of being able to differentiate into new cells that could have the uh, ability to repair other damaged lung tissue, other damaged alveoli. It's possible with maybe using these cells in different treatments that these RAS cells could either prevent or at least help to alleviate any negative and bad effects of different types of, you know, lung disease, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, um which generally results like one thing from very heavy smoking um emphysema, emphysema whenever emphysema when we start seeing that very delicate and important lung tissue becoming your irref- uh irreparably destroyed Damaged, yeah. and exactly and um chronic bronchitis as well and again excess phlegm being produced excess inflammation of the bronchioles and it could be in the future a very nice treatment for yeah. alleviating
0: these disorders. So I wonder, my mind is going to a hundred different places. So I wonder if a you can find the signal or chemical needed to signal these cells to basically become these RAS cells, right?
1: Oh, I can imagine so, yeah, for and sure. The, and
0: that that's that's a big ph- will become a very big pharmaceutical, very expensive drug. Oh yeah. And or maybe and they, producing they have, them. Go ahead. Good.
1: I was just going to say they they went deep into the paper and again we're not going to get into the boring details but if you haven't read through that nature paper you should when you have, you know, all that free time that you have down in Florida. But um, that mm. kind of switch or the signaling mechanisms that regulate when those RES cells differentiate into what are called the alveolar type two cells, it's regulated by classical signaling pathways like Wnt signaling, mm. and uh, notch signaling as well. So they were able to determine
0: at how that how these cells can get turned told. on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yep. for, for our non science listeners, signaling pathways are basically mechanisms by which cells can get turned on or turned off, right? So mm-hmm. okay, no, yeah, that'll got be it. great. That'll be great. Now, do they talk about whether these cells themselves are damaged when lungs are damaged? Because let's say someone is a chronic smoker and you know they're damaging all their cells and we're saying, oh, these cells may have a role in repair, but what if you're the smoking is also killing those cells, right?
1: Well, if you damage these cells and completely destroy those new cells and damage these RAS cells, then you are going the opposite way. You're going to actually lead to mm. a condition where your lungs may not be as readily able to regenerate, and these RES cells able to differentiate into those types of alveolar cells that are then able to release a chemical that can repair damaged uh,
0: alveoli. I wonder if the activity of these cells is different in different people, right? So because you can have someone smoke for 10 years, and some other person smoke for ten years, and one person gets COPD and emphysema, or whatever, and the some other people person don't. is fine, right? Yeah. And I wonder if the expression, the the activity of these cells, is different in different higher. people in people who show no symptoms. Yeah, that in mm-hmm. those people who are fine after smoking for decades, maybe they have a higher activity of these RAS cells than than the rest of the population.
1: Well, think about it. I mean, you're the you're the cell biologist. I mean, I, I know some about cell biology, but and like cell signaling pathways, but you're the one who used to teach it. Um, it, it it's possible that, you know, upregulation of those signaling mechanisms of those regulatory pathway mechanisms, uh, and a genetic component there could be a possible reason why, you know, yeah, yeah, some people are able to yeah. live smoking for 50 years. And maybe yeah. they have a cough, but their lungs are not as destroyed and as mangled when you do a chest x-ray on them, compared to somebody who smokes for 20 years, lungs right. are destroyed, right. emphysema, and they're not going to be long for this world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they would have they would have an aberrant level of expression of these genes needed to make these cells uh, fully, fully competent. Yeah,
1: um, I just want to clarify something I know we usually do clarifications at the beginning of our episodes but when I was talking initially about that uh, those molecules that um, kind of maintain fluid lining and I said that I believe I said they maintained surface tension in the bronchioles and alveoli they actually reduce uh, surface tension so I misspoke there just wanted to clear that up and by reducing the surface tension, that exists there, that's what helps to prevent those tiny airways from collapsing in on themselves and basically sticking together like wet tissue
0: paper. You're fired now.
1: Well, that's okay. We can we can find a replacement any day of the week. Um but yeah, um, yeah, pretty cool. Very cool. It, it is study. it is interesting.
0: Yeah. And uh definitely worthy of being in nature. I mean, it's hard to get a paper in nature.
1: They did. They did look to, this will be the last thing, because I know I, whenever it's my time to talk about fizz and talk about cool stuff, I begin to uh, just go on tangents. But they looked for these cells, these special types of cells in mice, and they didn't find as many. Mm. And um, one thing that they were able to, I believe, find them in ferrets. So what they think is with larger mammals and larger animals, that that's when you start to see the
0: I guess uh, rise or the origin of these special types of cells. Interesting. You know, ferrets are a common uh, model organism uh, for respiratory virus uh, studies, like you know flu flu virus uh, studies and RSV things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So they did use some ferrets in this uh, study, right? Exposed uh, them to cigarette smoke and looked at it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. They did. Cool.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Again, something that we'll track and keep in mind. Uh, Who knows what will be on the horizon here. Maybe we eventually this is manipulated in a way where we can jumpstart, if you will, the differentiation of these RES cells into the types of alveolar cells that are then able to repair damaged lung tissue. Yeah. I think a lot of therapeutic yeah. options here. for well, these, they, they for may these. have
0: a they may have a role in in coronavirus infection. There you go.
1: Yeah, COVID lung With people, could be exactly very yeah. easily treatable here.
0: Yep. Yeah, or that. Uh, clogged lungs from you know a few years back we talked about those with uh, people uh, vaping yeah that's true i forgot about that episode <laughs> yeah um cool all right man now yeah, thanks thanks for uh, finding that study uh, interesting yeah, of interesting stuff all right let's uh let's wrap it up anything else i think that is it that's all i have all right well folks uh you heard the man that's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. That is, again, thebiobusters at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our Instagram page. Dr. Foner keeps promising to send me uh, updates for that. Subscribe and share. And uh, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, etc. And you can find these videos on Daily Motion follow and share you know subscribing does us a lot if you listen frequently and don't subscribe please do because then you know it it tells us people out there care about the content we produce mm. and then we'll make more of it yeah. and um you know uh, share share it with people if you think it's content worth sharing uh have at it Tell your friends absolutely all right we'll catch you next time Great. Right, thank right. you